Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Wednesday Night Live. This is Ron Crawford coming to you from the Father's Church in Dallas, Texas, and hard to believe we're already now in the month of May in 2022, but here we are, and the Spirit of the Lord is moving wonderfully. We are expectant, and we are poised to go forth in obedience as our Heavenly Father opens the doors that have been restricted to a certain degree in these past couple of years. These are good days. And uh, just a, a point of order uh, for this week, I wanted to remind all of my congregation as well as our Saints Network that this coming Saturday is First Saturday. It's a time when we invite all of our Saints Network um, family throughout the world to jointly go before the Lord in prayer. I know there are various times of the day because we cross lots of time zones, but our, our objective this Saturday is to submit ourselves before the Lord with an eye toward going forth to to be ready to obey him uh, and to hear his voice. We ask that we would be clear to hear his voice so that we can partner with the King of Glory. So that directive should be being sent out to those of you who regularly receive that. But whether you receive it or not, this is your invitation right here. And it's always a wonderful thing for the many, many years now that we've been um, enjoying this common prayer time. It's a wonderful thing to see the way God speaks to his people in various parts of the world. And it's, it's amazing the way he orchestrates a commonality of theme and expression. Uh, through the interpretation of of our prayer times. And uh, I know that that's uh, some of you who are from a more conservative Pentecostal background, you may wonder, well, what does he mean by interpretation of the prayer time? Well, you know, a lot of those verses that we memorized, uh, whether you're a Bible scholar or whether you're a Pentecostal purist or whatever you might be, the Bible clearly says when you pray in an unknown tongue, when you speak in an unknown tongue, pray, you may interpret. We've studied that out through the scriptures and analyzed the word meanings. But the point is, is that you shouldn't just come to pray and um, have a time and say, oh, isn't that great, and never reflect through the power of the Spirit as to what what he was saying, what, what he might have been conveying. Now, it's not translation. It doesn't say, if you speak in an unknown tongue, pray that you might translate. This perplexes many people. So it's not going to be a verbatim. Everything that you prayed in the Spirit or everything that you exchanged with God, but it is an interpretation and God chooses, just like he does in the walk of faith, he chooses to illuminate certain factors that he deems 
would benefit you in your partnership with him. He doesn't tell you every detail. If he did that, there would be no stepping forward in faith. You'd just be following the script. Now, and again, in a lot of churches, they love the script. They, they love to have everything charted out when they come together uh, for, their, for their meetings. They want to know the exact times. They want to know what's going to be said, what's going to be sung, what's going to be done. They don't want any surprises. I, I would hate to be with those kinds of people if they were trying to romance someone. I mean, we don't, we don't really do that in any other, well, in most other forms of passionate display. You know, if you're watching a, a sporting event even, you know, you, do, what, where's the excitement level if you know everything that's going to happen inning by inning or quarter by quarter, period by period? There's that element of excitement. And um, so God lets us know and experience things that will benefit us and will ultimately train us. But that's the essence of interpretation. It's from that word in the New Testament by which um, seminarians get their, their hermeneutic study. It's hermeneia. And so it's studying to formate something that you're going to communicate. So often during our prayer times as saints, God will illuminate something on one day and then days later even, he'll illuminate another part of that. And it's, it's bit by bit like a journey. It is a walk with God. And, um, you know, for during my classical Pentecostal upbringing, we thought that interpretation was just something that the, the, normally the same person would do after someone launched out with a message in tongues at the end of the pastor's sermon. It's almost like those people, and I grew up in the church, so... Uh, just as a just as a viewpoint from a little kid, and then I saw the same thing when I would travel in ministry. It's just almost some people think that their ministry is to blurt out in tongues, and they can't hardly wait for the pastor to finish his sermon and tell everyone to bow their heads in prayer so that they can launch right then. Now, if that's you, forgive me for for uh, detailing <laughs> your strategy. But we'd see it. We knew it. And, and when, even when I became a pastor, uh, there were certain people who felt that that was their ministry. And very often they would also, as soon as they'd finish their message in tongues, they would then go off into their interpretation. Or sometimes they even had a tag team. They had a person that regularly worked with them who would interpret. And... Um, of course, the awkward time where there would be no interpretation and the pastor who had just delivered a sermon would have to come up with an interpretation so it didn't seem like there was a, um, there was a breach of spiritual protocol. That might seem like I'm mocking that. I'm really not. I'm just saying what happened. 
You know, it's the emperor's new clothes. But really, that was not interpretation. That was not what the New Testament, in the, in the fullness of what all it says about it, that, you know, the yea, my people, I'm coming soon, um, even though that we believe is true, Maranatha, come, come quickly, um, that's not what really interpretation in the, in the New Testament really means. And so whenever you're praying in the Spirit, you want to submit your, your mind to the things of the Spirit and meditate, wait upon God and see what he might reveal about your shared time of praying. Now, for some who don't pray in the Spirit, or even if you do speak in tongues, you might think that prayer is just airing your laundry list before God. And um, there's not a whole lot of interpretation with that other than you'd like to have an interpretation as to when, when am I going to get these answers. But the point, though, is none of that has to do with the message I'm, <laughs> I felt led from the Spirit to bring to you today, and we're going to transition to that now. But this coming Saturday is First Saturday Prayer. I remind my congregation and I invite all of our Saints Network family. And if the Lord shows you something or uh, illuminates something or gives you an insight from that prayer time, not from the sermon you heard the week before or not from a dream you had five years ago, but from that prayer time, submit it. And uh, we put those together. Well, I say we are some wonderful folks who commit to this ministry. And at the end of uh, a number of days, we see what all the Lord said. And it is wonderful to hear the voice coming from the saints of the Spirit from many different places around the world. And it's Always amazing to me how God orchestrates that. So, prayer, this first Saturday in May. Now, today, the title of our message is The Torment. What a strange thing. I know you all couldn't wait to hear this message when you saw the title. But the, the Bible speaks in the New Testament and uses this term in regard to the witnesses in the book of Revelation, uses this term in regard to Jesus, uses this term in regard to those that stand for righteousness. And I felt very, very succinctly that we needed to have clarity as exactly what the Word of God means when it says this term. Because in understanding this, we then glean in a much better way what actually goes on when we're in spiritual warfare. What actually goes on when we are representing the kingdom in the nations of the earth. What actually goes on today as a Christian 
here in the United States or whatever country you may be in. And so, um, let's read a verse of Scripture, passage of Scripture, and instead of just giving the definition of this term first, let's read the passage and we'll talk about the context a little bit and then we will look at what the meaning of the word is and see what was really going on. This takes place in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verses 4 to 12. Now, there's a whole lot of things we could talk about here. I mean, uh, verse 4, the two witnesses in the book of Revelation, these are the two olive trees, the two candlesticks standing before the God of all the earth. This is a reference from the Old Testament where literally in the Old Testament, these are called the sons of the anointing. And it's not just two people in the Old Testament. It indicates, it indicates um, a function of the people of God before the throne of God. And so these two witnesses that are being highlighted here in this passage, they are... Um, they're obviously in very intimate commune with God at his throne. They are representing the ways of God by virtue of the candlestick. They are submitting themselves for the pressing of the burden of the Lord, which indicates the oil that is there. And this could this type of thing really is something that all of us as saints should be doing before the Lord, even now. Now, I know that here in Revelation 11, it speaks of two witnesses. A lot of people think it's Moses and Elijah. I don't personally think that. Um, I think that this is indicative of Lots of, perhaps these are the final two of many saints who have been ministering on behalf of the, the throne of God throughout the earth and in the spirit realm during the tumultuous days leading up to the tribulation or entering into the first part of the tribulation. Now, I know that many of the, the denominational people will argue incessantly about pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib raptures. I, I love uh, what Jack Hayford has taught very eloquently from the Foursquare churches, that he believed that it was probably more a mid-trib rapture or a catching away. I'm not going to argue about it, so let's let's just take off our argument. The schools I went to, the movement I went through growing up were all pre-trib. I'm not going to argue about it because really nobody knows. I remember being in seminary and uh, two, two professors that I had for classes, particularly about Daniel and Revelation, and there was another one studying eschatology. These were two of the brightest, most respected scholars in the movement we came from. And both of them said that as they studied the scriptures, it's very convenient to say 
that um, the trumpet's going to blow, we're going to be caught away, and then the, the world's going to hell. Um, but the scripture does not bear out specifically that timetable. Uh, you, can, you can stitch it together topically, but the context don't really make sense. You know, if, even if you think about this, if, if, if it plays out the way you think it is, you pre, pre-trib folks, uh, how long did it take for you in your Christian walk to mature? How long did it take for perhaps your pastor to study and to gain experience and then to prove him or herself before you entrusted them with the duties in your church to be a pastor? Did it happen overnight? Did they wake up one day and suddenly become that? Well, of course not. But somehow we expect for these saints and prophets that are ministering all during the time of Daniel's writings and the book of Revelation to suddenly the church is gone and then you have all these people that spring up and they're doing exploits for the kingdom overnight, as it were. Now, some people would say, oh, well, you know, when the rapture comes, it's going to be an awakening. And there'll be a lot of people who miss their, their wife or their, or their kids and they're just heartbroken and they plead with God for another chance and they turn and there'll be a lot of people with that fervor that they know that they know that they know. That's stretching it too. So I think that the things we see in the book of Revelation are not one-offs. They're things that, um, that God has taken time in developing. The people, just as in any other walk of life, take time in developing. Uh, and you can look at all the illustrations. I mean... How long was it that Elisha was in training? How many years was it that Jesus was on earth before the Father said, okay, it's time? How long did, um, how long did Samuel grow and develop before he actually was entrusted to be the great seer prophet? See, the list is endless. The Apostle Paul, who was a scholar upon scholar, Pharisee of the Pharisees, how many years was it before he really emerged as the Apostle Paul we know? How long was the school of Arabia? Some say 10 years, some say 14, some say 7. But that's a long time. Every one of those time spans is longer than the tribulation. So we expect these people who are doing these exploits to presto, changeo, immediately become mature, valiant men and women of God. That's just nonsense, isn't it? So... We see these two witnesses. I don't know how many witnesses there actually were upon the earth serving the kingdom in this way. I don't know how many there may still have been alive. This is just showing two of them. Now, my personal opinion, and it is an opinion, is that perhaps these two were a culmination point. As you can see right now in our world, the, the enemy and 
the godless nations are trying to eliminate Christianity. They're trying to eliminate the virtues clearly spelled out and taught in the Bible. And um, it takes some time for them to do their nefarious work. Point by point, bit by bit, they have an agenda. The children of this world are much more organized than the people of God. Jesus said that. Read it. And um, I think that leading up to this time, there were lots of people that were serving the throne. We're being trained to do that right now, and we're doing it right now, aren't we? We're called to do that. And this is a culminative moment here. So let's read about it. Beginning again, then, we read verse 4. Look at verse 5 of Revelation 11. You have the outline there, but you can look it up in your Bible. If any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth, devouring their enemies. If any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. They have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottom of his pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. They of the people and the kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves." They that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. After three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them. They stood upon their feet. Great fear fell upon all them which saw all that fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. That's amazing. That's amazing. Can you imagine what our current media will do in broadcasting this? Can you imagine the commentary? Can you imagine the things that that same media that's going to broadcast this around the world. I mean, this, this, the, how are they all going to know and rejoice and give presents to one another? You imagine the lead up on all the things that they will try to do to vilify people that are serving God in this way? Now, it says that these two witnesses, these two prophets, tormented them that dwelt on the earth. That sounds malicious. That sounds cruel, doesn't it? And if we're not careful, you know, we would read that and we would think, yeah, that's right, we'll send all those folks to hell. They're serving the devil. Just let them have it. But let's examine what that term torment really is because it's used in a number of other passages of Scripture in the New Testament some very strategic passages, and it would behoove us to know what it means. So, 
torment here is the Greek term basanos. And it originally referred to what is known as a touchstone, a hard black stone that was used to test the quality of gold or silver. And you would take the gold or silver and you would run it on that stone and then the streak that was left on the stone surface, if it was, would be inspected. And that way they would prove the validity of the gold or the silver. Now they also had some acidic type of, not Hasidic, acidic type of residue or formula that they would pour then on that streak to see uh, if there were any other uh, alloys mixed in with the gold or silver so that they could, inter uh, they could indicate the purity of it. And eventually then this term was used to describe torture or even in medieval times the rack. But the, the original meaning of this was this touchstone that showed the purity of either gold or silver. Now, isn't that something? Isn't that something? So, whoever these prophets were, whoever these witnesses were, and whatever the, the retinue of those who ministered in this way were, their main measure of irritation amongst the world was that they stood for faith, they stood for the service of God at all costs, and they stood for the truth of God. Gold represents faith, the purity of faith. The scripture talks about this regularly. Silver represents our devotion to what God has called us to do. And that, those two speak about relationship and authority. And when you are standing on behalf of the Word of God, you are not compromising. You're staying true to what God has asked you to do and how He's asked you to minister and serve. For somebody who is really doing that, just the presence of that alone irritates the world. And I could give lots of illustrations of this today. But, you know, if you hear, for instance, the past couple of days, there has been uh, a lot of protests about abortion and the leaked memo from the, one of the Supreme Court judges. Uh, and suddenly, across the country, there erupts um, protests. And a lot of the protests against the, the fact that the Supreme Court is likely to over, overrule the unconstitutional nature of Roe versus Wade, a lot of the protests, if you look at what the signs are that are they're being hoisted, they call Christians, um, 
misogynistic. They call them white fascists. They call them people who hate women, hate women's rights, or what they say are women's rights. But it's, it's, it's against Bible believers. It's against people who believe that God gives life. And that whole concept is blown out the window because it, it, is, it is deemed as restrictive of women's freedom. And that it's easy for them who believe that to say that even up to term, you could um, abort a baby because until the child is actually born, and even if it is born, it could still be snuffed out because it's not really a life. So for those who say God gives life, the anger then, the, uh, the, the, the discomfort on behalf of those that want to just have free the, their quote-unquote freedom to do what they want to do, the anger is lodged against perhaps you if you believe that the Bible is true and that God creates life and that it's uh, y'all shall not kill but it's it's against you and and if your very presence is a blight to what they want to do your very stance of what you believe God's word says is an irritant to them because if you stand for righteousness or for truth well, then um, the very fact that they're not doing it, you reflect that what they're saying is wrong and they are furious with it. That's just one example. That's just one example. And so, especially in the spirit realm, um, those of you who really stand for righteousness as an intercessor or a saint in the spirit realm that can be readily seen and your position of who God's called you to be can also be readily seen if it's awake and it's functioning you can even perceive the the dynamic of how vibrant that person is in their service to the Lord. That can be seen in the spirit realm. Um, and so these two prophets or witnesses who were standing on behalf of what God, who God is, and, and all, you know, I can only imagine what some of these nations and how wicked they really will be and the things they will be doing that is an abomination an affront to God um, the way they will blaspheme against God and do unimaginable unspeakable acts God is going to send these folks who by their very presence will bring shame will bring uh, measures of conviction and 
you know, you read in the New Testament about how many times Paul was stoned. You read in the New Testament about Stephen being stoned. You read the, the horrible things that were done to Christ on the cross. Why were these done? They were done by people who did not want to hear that message and inspired by the demonic, the very presence of these people. And their words was an affront to those who wanted to live as if they themselves were God. Matthew 8, verses 28 through 29, talks about when Jesus and his disciples landed on the shore of the Gadarene country. And it says in verse 28 of Matthew 8, when Jesus was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no man might pass by that way. Fierce there means that they were antagonistic. They would just whoop up on people. And um, that's a terrible thing. Behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Are you come hither to torment us before the time? Matthew was not alone in utilizing this term in the Gospels. This is the readily expressed term that this army of unclean spirits, the representative of them, the commander of them, said to Jesus. So what was this spirit really saying? First of all, before the time, kairos, which meant that um, God has ordained in his timetable when warfare in certain areas is supposed to be accomplished on behalf of the deposits of the glory, on behalf of the established measures of uh, the deposits of God's presence and, um, you know, where the strong man is encamped. God has ordained when someone or a group is to go there and to bind the strong man and to take possession of that place. So there is a time, a well-appointed time, by the great commander, the Lord of hosts, when this will happen. But the enemy, this army, Legion is an army group, several thousands. They don't talk about swords. They don't talk about people making long, flowery declarations. They don't talk about people sprinkling holy water. They don't talk about busting up idols. They don't talk about any of that. They use this term, torment, which speaks of gold and the silver, where what God has ordained to be, what God has proclaimed from his throne, because that's the essence of where faith comes from, and who God has sent to establish that. That is what the enemy fears. That is what 
the sole testimony of the of an of a demonic army that's what they fear they recognized the author of faith gold and they recognized his position as a son the prototype the firstborn of many brethren the son of god they recognized that and they knew that those two things together in the timing of god would evict them they knew that they could not withstand that so they say torment and kairos isn't that something isn't that something you know there are many times when in intercession we've talked about this this makes some people uncomfortable but it's true anyway um, that when god takes you into a place in intercession and you know that you're interceding about something in spirit realm and in the patterns of the heavens and the temple of the tabernacle but if you're in an offshoot place and you're encountered and you're you know apostle paul said we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities powers and the like the, one of the things that you will feel pulled upon is the breastplate of righteousness or the breastplate of judgment and what they're testing there is do you have a right to be here and have you been commissioned by the throne because that's the most important thing to them they don't like it they don't appreciate it but that those are the things in the timing of god that will evict them it's not some long flowing prayer it's not that you have the right amount of people fasting or that you have argued in the court of heaven it's are you here in this timing with an assignment from the throne and are you the person that's supposed to be representing this that is what is indicated by torment it has nothing to do in this context with being irritated it has nothing to do with fearfulness now they they proskuneoed before jesus and they cried out they did not want to to leave this cushy place it, that was argued they asked the lord don't cause us not to leave this country it's the old um uh going into the herd of swine the first case of deviled ham in scripture um they didn't want to leave there and jesus granted their request do you note that so the torment for the nations in the babylonian system the torment for the legion of the demonic is found in the timing of god it's found in you representing a measure of direction from the throne that but obedience to faith which is gold it will be tried but it'll be there and your place in god as someone who is command ye me concerning my sons concerning the work of my hands that lieutenant authority which is why jesus when he would come he would say i've come to do the will of him who sent me and if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because I'm doing his will.
He had been sent by the Father. That was his position, and he was doing the will of God, which was faith. This makes perfect sense. And this word, which is besanos, is is indicative of that. Now, there are lots of, well, there's not a whole lot of instances of this word in Scripture, I chose not to talk about some of them. Um, You can look at it for yourself. Sometimes I try to do a a deeper dive where we just look at just about every passage. You can do this for yourself. I'm giving you the meaning of the word. You figure it out when it's used. Like the birth of the man-child, it's used there. And what the the woman with uh, um, standing on the moon with the cross, crown um, with uh, you know giving birth to the man child the enemy tries to go in that birthing there's a torment I said I wasn't going to talk about these but there are others that are there you know God will himself send judgments upon the earth in the days of revelation and people will be tormented by things God releases yeah they won't like the stingers they won't like those other things But the torment is that they know that God is the one that's in control, and they don't like that. Do you see the rise of that mentality today? Of course we do. In fact, it's astounding to me. I said this. Maybe I was asleep. Maybe I was just lost in intercession. But in the days leading up to the 2016 election, some of the people that were coming out of the woodwork you can say whatever you want about President Trump, but he sure, in some ways, in some ways, was one of these polarizing individuals, and he had a way of, of uh, being used, I believe, in the timing of God to reveal what people were actually doing. And um, some of the things that I saw emerge across the country and in universities. I I don't know what you think, but I was stunned. I thought, people actually intelligent, scholarly people actually believe this, or they don't believe this? People today can't even say what a woman is, what a man is, because it will infuriate millions of people in the nation? Uh, you know, there are lots of examples of this, and it's it's a polarizing thing. I, you know, when COVID put kids uh, uh, into many young people into an educational strata where they were learning from home. Remember those days? Wow, my grandkids did that, and thank God they're in a Christian school. Um, but my daughter was teaching during the first year of this and um, having all those kids seeing what was going on in their house and then having to deal with parents. Oh, dear God, we need to pray for teachers. But to see what a lot of those teachers were actually trying to teach the students, the, the demonic viewpoints, the perverted viewpoints trying to not only present them, but convert people into it. 
it polarized. And then as that was being brought forth, the reactions of people, it's, it's amazing. I tell you, our country is really in a weird position. On your sheet, uh, we're going to skip over one for now. We're going to look at Lot in the midst of Sodom, 2 Peter 2, 7 through 9. God delivered just righteous Lot, who was vexed, that's our word, with the filthy conversation of the wicked. That righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, vexed, there's the word again, his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Now, I think Lot had no business being in Sodom. There's no indication that God told him to go there. We all know why he went there. He went there because he was jealous of Abraham, and he had a wife who was ambitious and wanted to launch out on her own. We see what the end result for her was, a model for the Morton Salt Company, a pillar of salt. And her daughters weren't much better, and even Lot who offered his daughters up to be abused by wicked people. I mean, Lot had no business being there. And he stayed at the gate of that horrid city. Um, I think he stayed there, first of all, because it was commerce. But secondly, he wanted to get a breath of fresh air, probably. But he had no business being there. But here the Bible says that he was vexed. Whatever it was that was ingrained in him, the Bible calls him just lot, righteous. I, 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 God has a lot of odd friends. Thank God for his long-suffering. Uh, I, I, we have to be careful not to judge, but... I don't, uh, honestly, I look at this and the graciousness of God calls Lot righteous. My viewpoint is this guy really, you talk about getting rid of his birthright. Boy, what a guy. But something deep within him, with all this wickedness going on, it showed over and over again. Here it uses the term vexed, but it's the same word, basanos. Um, his, what he knew was right, and what he knew people should be was daily being exposed for the carnality and the wickedness that it really was. I don't know what you feel, but we're in the world, but not of the world. But I feel increasingly like a stranger in a strange land. Uh, and, and when Christians, when I say something like this, immediately there'll be those that say, I'm a racist. And I don't mean that. But what I'm saying is the country, when I was a boy growing up, I don't know what happened to that country. I don't know what happened to that country. It's, it's largely gone. 
And it had its it had a lot of problems. And you know my testimony. I grew up in in a Christian home. Um my parents had five kids. My dad worked at a mill. My mother didn't work. We didn't have much money at all. We had food to eat and safe house to, to live in, but we didn't have much. We always drove an old car. Um, if anything had to be done to the car, my dad would tinker with it and fix it. But well over half of my friends were black kids. I, I, I just grew up. We grew up together. And, um, you know, I have a very dear brother. We know him in the Saints Network, Pastor Robert Fulton from New York City. He and I are fast friends. And we talk about, we basically had a very similar upbringing. The things we joked about, the songs we sang, the things we'd hear on the radio, uh, the television programs we'd watch, practically the same. And, um, but the things that I knew then, I don't know where they went. And I fear for this nation. I believe that I love America, but I believe that we are being positioned for a fall. And I don't like that. Uh, but it's just a shame. So things that I hear, things that I perceive that don't, that don't speak of righteousness, that don't speak of being an in-God-we-trust nation, that don't speak of the vitality of the Scripture, that don't speak of what is right and what is wrong, that don't speak about having a godly home I I'm stunned and and I I feel that there's a vexing because of who we are before God what his word says what we're called to be and to do darkness the Bible says in the last days will be upon the earth in gross darkness upon the people, but the light of God will shine upon us. Listen, that light is not going to make everybody in the world jump up and dance. Um, that it, it will be a tormenting. And that that's terrible. Now, I put two other examples of this. Uh, in the scripture. And one is, this would this is a good sermon from Mark 6 when the disciples were in the boat and there was a storm and um, Jesus looked out and he saw them toiling, Mark 6 verse 48, in rowing. Toiling is this word. The wind was contrary about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking upon the sea. Um, you know that story. And then Peter steps out and he walks on the water and he takes his eye off Jesus and he sinks. To me, the key thing in this whole story is them toiling in rowing. 
I don't know why they felt the necessity to be going. Jesus obviously orchestrated this whole thing. The Father did. And it tested them. It tested their strength. It tested their obedience. It tested their mission. And it tested their faith in the Lord, in the miraculous. It tested their perception in the spirit realm. It tested a lot of things. And here they were toiling and rowing. You know, there's a lot of other words that the Spirit of God could have used to describe them rowing in the midst of uh, strong wind on the sea. On the sea, You know, it could have talked about the arduous task. It could have talked about the strenuous labor. It could have talked about the... Uh, the, the great measures of exertion. The, to me, if I was just writing this story and I was just trying to talk about them battling the storm, that's the word that you would use to for the spirit to yank this word out of the thesaurus of the throne and stick it here has meaning. You, know, you think, how in the world does testing gold and silver have anything to do with them row, row, rowing the boat in a storm. God's not confused. He's not an elemental author. He says what he means and he means what he says. So this was a testing of lots of different things. The other verse, and see we're getting low on time. Um, the other verse that I chose was what Jesus said was the greatest demonstration of faith that he had seen. He marveled at the faith of the centurion. And here in Matthew 8, verses 5 through 7, Jesus entered into Capernaum. There came unto him a centurion, beseeching him, saying, Lord, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented, Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. And you know the story. The centurion says, no, it's not necessarily I'm necessary. I'm not worthy that you come under my roof. I'm a man under authority. I say to this one, go. And he goes, come and he comes. I'm under that same authority. So I know if you speak the word, it'll be done. Jesus marveled. The only two times the Bible says Jesus marveled was here regarding faith and marveling at a lack of faith. How was this servant grievously Bassano? Well, obviously, this was a righteous home. You know, some people try to equate this man with Cornelius, who was also a centurion. Uh, let me just say that there were a, a number of centurions in the Roman legions that were godly people they may obviously they hadn't been born again yet but they feared God and he had a servant doesn't say he was a slave he could have been a lieutenant in the army who served 
as the personal assistant in the military. There's a lot of rulers in the military who, who have that kind of thing. We don't know of the faith of this individual. But the scripture says that this person was grievously Bassano, grievously tormented. They may have had a belief in God. They obviously heard of Jesus. They, they might have been praying to God. I don't know. This is a curious use of this term in the passage of Scripture that spoke of the greatest demonstration of faith in Jesus' words that he'd seen. Why would Jesus immediately say, I'll come there. I'll come to your home. Do you think he was just blowing the breeze? Ah, oh, don't think Jesus did that. Because he didn't. He meant what he said. Something about this man and that servant was a memorial before God, as the angel said to Cornelius. And so they were waiting on God. They were believing God. And that's how this was being weighed. Many of you have been in positions like this. Some of you are there now. You know what God has called you to be. You know what he said to you. You know what you're believing for. And uh, something is coming against you. It may not be illness. It may be a family turmoil. It may be uh, some kind of an issue that is grievous. And you're very... Faith is being tested. Your very position in God is being tested. But thank God, you're in a good position. So, I want you to see that in spiritual warfare, in your ministry for the nations in your service to God, in your stand in this world, in your grappling on behalf of the promises of God, there is one thing among others, but there's one thing that we've not often recognized that is a link between all these. And that is that your identity in God and your faith in God is being revealed and it's being tested. Now, some of you are thinking this. If we were in a, in a, in a class where people could raise their hand, you might ask, what about Isaiah who said his head was like a flint? Well, and what about the prophet who said that uh, his head was, forehead was like an adamant stone? Well, those are two different types of things. They're not this same kind of stone. The adamant stone was like a diamond. It was hard and it was sharp. And whatever it faced would not be, um, would not survive it it would penetrate through the the flint rock was a hard rock and it was more 
a foundational thing that wouldn't be moved. The adamant was a piercing. It could resist any other element, no matter how hard the element, that faith of that forehead would go forward. So any of you with a diamond in your forehead, you're pretty sharp. But the flint rock was, I'm going to stand here. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be foundationally secure. I'm not budging. We read flint rock and we think sparks. But the, the thing is, it's a solid rock. Those two have their own sermon in Scripture. But this that we're looking at today, this touchstone, speaks about the things we've talked about. And I believe that the Lord wanted us to see this today because out of all the things you can do in warfare, out of all the things you can do on behalf of the nations, out of all the things that you can do in grappling with demonic armies, out of all the things you can do in serving the Lord when things get rough, uh, in God moments, all, all the things you can do when you are surrounded by a wicked world, all the things that you can do if you are, uh, if you are dealing with a scenario that is trying to rob you of life itself, the most important thing you can secure is that you are walking in faith by what the throne of God is saying to you. That gold, even though it's tested, is going to emerge in fine quality, and it'll be a glory to the Lord. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Uh, we walk by faith and not by sight. That is tested by this stone. And your place in God, your obedience in the placement in God, that also is being tested. And those two things are what will guarantee you victory. The lack of them in the timing of God will relegate you to failure, maybe even defeat. And they have to be together, the gold and the silver. They have to be together. The enemy will attack them. He'll attack them individually. He'll attack them when you are pure in both of them. Some people lose out because, as Lot did, they didn't like where God had placed them. Boy, I grieve over that. Some people don't like what God is wanting them to do. They, they, they want another truth, something that will help them to not be accountable and to be more accepted in the world for whatever reason. Either one of those, the gold and silver, if it's missing from this stone of verifying, will, will cause you to fail or be defeated. But the two together, and they walk together, are vital. I'll say one other thing about this. You can look at, I know Swarovski, Swarovski crystals, they have a whole line of touchstone products and they, they sell them uh, outside the stores. It's almost like, reminds me of like of Avon. And they've got usually women, I'm sure there are some men, 
who have touchstone parties and they sell these crystals. And then the demonic world even believe in these touchstone crystals that they believe personify certain facets of the spirit realm. Like, and it, I, was, I was researching this last night and early this morning, and I was listening to one guy, and he had this green stone. And he was talking about how this green crystal brought about clarity in thought and healing. And I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? You know, we, we study about the seven spirits and we recognize of God and we recognize that the green indicates a prophetic walk and healing and life and supply. It doesn't surprise me that the demonic realm would have some kind of a stone that they said would indicate that. Now, I'm not verifying or glorifying their belief in stones. I do believe demons will try to populate, it's just as they did in the Old Testament, you know, idols. And, um, you know, one of my favorite stories is when the Ark of the Covenant was was stolen by the enemy and uh, in from Shiloh, and uh, the enemy idol would fall over in the night. <laughs> That's great. So, but I'm not justifying any of these things. I'm saying we have the pure stone. And, you know, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, we're going to be given a white stone with a name God chooses. We'll have the hidden manna. But to me, from an identity and a service standpoint, you represent, you represent a depiction of faith, an obedient placement and service in the timing of the Lord. And I end by reminding you, that's what is going to be of utmost importance in the time of the end as we minister in the nations. That's what we will, we will see the victory come from uh, because of what it is in God and how we represent him when we deal with legions of demons. That's what's going to be shown forth as we move about in this world. In fact, I, I know I'm past time here, but this is really a, a wonderful insight. And I pray that it ministers to you and perhaps it will be a measure of the Spirit to convict and to draw us into a further and a deeper appreciation of what God has called us to do what he's called us to be in faith and in service, in relationship and in, um, in our divested authority and assignment. So I speak over you the callings and the giftings of God and your relationship with him. May it be pure, functional. Don't let the enemy wear you down. Don't let the world cause you to abandon this. That's what they want to do because it torments them. Don't let them disarm you. If there was a second amendment in the kingdom, it would say, don't be disarmed. Amen? God bless you. We'll look forward to praying together on this coming first Saturday 
And once again, thanks for spending this time in the Word today. Goodbye.